Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Alison Ettinger, who is a computational linguist and an assistant professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Chicago, working on natural language processing and computational cognitive modeling. Her interdisciplinary work draws on methods and insights from cognitive science, linguistics, and computer science to examine meaning extraction and predictive processes executed during language processing in humans and in artificial intelligence systems. Welcome, Alison. Hi, thanks. Uh, I want to start with one of your um, earlier papers, and it's entitled Modeling N400 Amplitude Using Vector Space Models of Word Representation, in which um, you looked at the, the vector space models, VSMs, as explicit models of word relations that influence the N400 and uh, the N400 is really is as a measurement uh, of the EEG, right? Um, yeah. Could you talk a bit about what N400 is and then we can uh, dig into uh, how, what you found with the VSMs? Yeah, so the N400 is a component of the human brain response that is used a lot by psycholinguists, by people who are interested in studying the language. Um, and so when you are when, when you're measuring the electrical signals of, of brain activity, um, the, what you see at about 400 milliseconds, peaking at about 400 milliseconds after the onset of a stimulus, as you're, for instance, reading one word at a time, yeah. um, is a is a negative going peak in the signal, which is referred to as the N400 component of that ERP response um, of that EEG measured by the EEG. Yeah. And what we seem to find accumulated over time in studying this signal is that it the N400 seems to be sensitive to the extent to which the word that you are reading there fits with the context, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So to be more explicit, what you see is that the uh, N400 can show, the default is for the N400 to, to it, the default is to see that peak. Um, but if you 
see that a word is particularly expected in the context, then you'll see a reduction in that M400 amplitude. So it can be an indication of how predictable a word is in context or how expected a word is in context. Okay. So yeah, so, 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 so psycholinguists like to study, use the N400 as an indication of how expected words are in context. And by manipulating that context, you can ask questions about uh, what, what language comprehenders are expecting as they process those contexts. Okay, so would it be right to assume, Alison, that um, whatever we are measuring there is sort of a proxy for the effort spent by the brain? So if it is expecting something or if it is the context is very clear uh, then then you get one response but uh, if it is something unexpected or the context is unclear you get a different response so it's a it's a proxy for how much effort the brain is spending yeah that's i think a reasonable way of thinking of it and it's one sort of analogy that people have used i think that that's a very sensible way of imagining this, this to be essentially that if you're having to put in the normal amount of effort to process a word because you didn't expect it ahead of time, then you're going to see that normal sized N400 amplitude. But if you were able to anticipate ahead of time what word is going to come up and you're able to do that work ahead of time, then you might imagine that that reduction in effort may be the reason that we're seeing that reduction in 400 amplitude. Okay, yeah. Uh, I remember reading something some time ago that uh, beauty is, uh, is you know, it's, it's a function of how much effort the brain has to spend, whether it's a painting or the face of a human being or whatever object you have. If the brain can, um, get, if the brain doesn't have to spend a lot of effort, so if you have, if it has symmetry, uh, you know, in, in different uh, uh, different directions, then uh, the brain defines that object to be more beautiful. It's that you, you, I know that you do a lot of work in cognitive science as well. Is that uh, is that something that that is related? Yeah, I don't have any expertise in sort of the relationship between expectedness and beauty, so I can't really comment on that. But it's an interesting idea, certainly. I, I've seen just peripherally. Um, sort of theories about what the predictors are for what people will find beautiful. I, I have not seen myself any work connecting the N400 response per se to that type of work. Okay, okay. So in this paper, vector space models, VSM, so you're basically um, creating a natural language processing engine uh, and then uh, using that uh, to, to look at um, what what it is doing and how that is related to what the brain might be doing? Yeah, so in that paper, basically, we, we constructed a very, very simple model based on vector space models of, of word representation. And we used that very simple model to test an alternative hypothesis that could potentially account for an observed pattern of results that had been seen in an, in an N400 experiment. So the basic idea there was in the experiment, uh, they were looking at the uh, N400 response to words in context, and they had contexts such as um, he caught the ball and scored a touchdown. There was nothing he loved more than a good game of. And now we have set up an expectation for what the next word might be. And they tried three different types of continuations after a context like this. Yeah. One was a continuation like football, which is the expected continuation in that context. Another was a continuation like baseball, which is not at all expected in that context, but shares 
semantic features mm -hmm. with football in that it's also a sport. And then the third continuation was an unexpected continuation that didn't share the same amount of semantic overlap, a continuation like Monopoly, which is a game, but not a sport. So they looked at the brain response to these three different types of continuations across a number of different contexts. And what they found was that, and the, 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 the critical observation is that often they, we have found that the N400 tracks what's known as close probability, which is how likely it is that a person would continue that context in a fill in the blank task with that word. So no one's gonna fill in that context with monopoly and no one's gonna fill in that context with baseball. And a lot of people are gonna fill in that context with football. So you would expect basically to see a reduced N400 amplitude on football and not a reduced amplitude on the ones that are not expected, that is baseball and monopoly. And the interesting observation in that study was that they did see a reduced N400 amplitude as expected on football. They saw a non-reduced amplitude on Monopoly, but even though baseball was not expected in the context, what they saw was that it showed this intermediate amplitude suggesting a certain amount of facilitation, facilitation being sort of a reference to what you were mentioning before about sort of making it easier to process this, this word. So so this was curious and there was a particular theory that these authors put forward about why this had happened yeah. and it basically said oh well football was so expected in the context that your brain predicts it ahead of time and because football is activated so to speak um, and because baseball shares features with it part of baseball was activated and that was why baseball also saw some facilitation um, also saw some reduction in the signal um, and so what we were saying was okay well that's one very interesting possible explanation for, for that result. But what if it's actually the case that you don't need to have predicted football yeah. ahead of time in order to see a reduction on baseball? Maybe it's actually that there are some sort of indirect, maybe not completely obvious relationship, direct relationships between the words of the context and the word baseball. Even though baseball doesn't make sense in that context, Maybe it actually could be the case that there are some connections between individual words in the context that may have increased the, the, the sort of passive expectation for baseball, what we might refer to as priming hmm. of, of baseball. And so what we took advantage of to test this hypothesis was these vector space models. Um, I don't know if I should give an, a, a detailed explanation of vector space models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I should give a little bit of an, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, so vector space models, basically, the idea here is we're going to make use of the distribution of words in their contexts and use that to derive a representation of those words and how similar they are to other words. So there's a famous quote, you shall know a word by the company that it keeps. And you can think of this in terms of things like... Um, if I see certain words and they always occur in the context of eat and spoon and uh, delicious, then we might imagine that these have to do with food. And so this is a, the, the words that, that this, this, these words occur with can tell us things about what the word means yeah. and what other words it might be similar to. And so vector space models are, word, are, are, are models that use uh, statistics to derive represent vector representations of words based on their distribution and context, and then 
once we have these vector representations, we're able to use them to quantify the relationships between words. So this and, is like, uh, Alison, yeah. this is like word to vector, right? So you take a word exactly. and then you convert that word into set of numbers, essentially, a vector. Yep, okay. yeah. Exactly. Word to vec is is one very prominent example of exactly this type of model. Okay. Okay. And so, um, so you mentioned close probability. So close probability is that the chance of predicting the next word, right, uh, in a sequence of words, uh, that the chance of the next word being being something, uh, and so. Um, that 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 probability should be sort of inversely related to the N four hundred, because if it is completely unexpected, N four hundred amplitude will be higher and the probability will be lower, right? Right. So a very high close probability often will correspond to a reduced N four hundred amplitude. Yep. Okay. Okay. And so um, so it's interesting. So what we are finding uh, in the in the BSM model is that it's acting a bit like the brain or is, is it too much, of a, too much of a jump? I think we didn't wanna go so far as to claim that it's acting like the brain, but in order to take seriously the results there and, and take, take that seriously as a, hypo as, as a representation of the hypothesis that we wanted to test, we did need to go so far as to say, as to take potentially seriously the relationships that that model produces between words. So basically we say, all right, we're going to measure the relationships between words that are produced within this vector space. So we're going, so maybe banana and strawberry are going to fall close together in the space because they both occurred near similar words or uh, something along those lines. Um, and so we're essentially saying these types of statistically based word pair relationships. We're going to take those seriously as something that might also be instantiated in the brain. For instance, if the brain is also keeping track of co-occurrence statistics, it may pick up on similar types of relationships. And so it may also have uh, you know, a similar type of relationship between banana and strawberry for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. And so now we wanna look and say, all right, we're going to use the fact that we have this model that's able to quantify relationships, and we're going to use that to try to say, okay, does baseball actually have a closer relationship to the words in that football context, like touchdown and pass and ball, than Monopoly does? And you can imagine just, this is just one example, but you can imagine how that might be the case, right? Because baseball includes balls, right? Yeah. And, and things like this, and, and Monopoly does not. And this is just to give a very, very low level example, and we averaged over a number of, of different contexts, just the ones that we had access to. Um, but, the, but yeah, the idea there was, we didn't wanna make a very strong claim. We certainly didn't wanna make the claim that our very simple vector-based model was a perfect model of how <laughs> language processing happens. Yeah. All we wanted to claim was that if we can suppose that the brain may have access to similar types of co-occurrence statistics. Mm. And if the brain is making use of some similar sort of representation system, or at least if that representation system can approximate sort of priming effects that we might see, then that can present an alternative explanation for the result that they saw, because that was, once we ran that model, we were able to reproduce, roughly speaking, the patterns that they observed. Right, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, if um, I wondered in the human context, 
if an individual only uh, is engaged in baseball. So baseball then becomes sort of a proxy for any kind of sport, right? Uh, because uh, he is yeah. not interested in, uh, in football or anything, uh, just baseball. And so um, in the human context, the brain might just plug in uh, baseball as sort of a proxy for any sport uh, into the context. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a deep neural network that may be overtrained, uh, perhaps. Um, it, uh, did you see any, any effects of those types of things or? Um... Um, it's an interesting, well, it's, it's, I think that part of what you're pointing out is that, that the, the, the commonality of being a sport may, may in fact be part of what underlies the fact that you see this effect. And this, I think, is uh, in the same spirit as the, the original hypothesis put forth by the authors. And I think it's a very interesting one um, in terms of uh relationship to overtraining of neural networks, I'm not sure that I've seen anything drawing an explicit connection between those things, but it's an interesting possibility. I think it's an interesting area of inquiry in general to think about the possibility that the predictive training that, for instance, language models are going through could bear some resemblance to the types of of, uh, learnings or statistical learning that we do as adults just over time and through our various experiences that lead to these lower level brain responses that seem to reflect statistics in the environment. Right, right, exactly. Um, I want to jump into another paper that you have. Uh, it's entitled Spying on Your Neighbors, Fine-Grained sure. Probing of Contextual Embeddings for Information About Surrounding Words. Right. So so this is another uh, NLP um, a model maybe a bit more complex and you are rather than using single words um, you're, you're kind of feeding the uh, feeding the system so to speak the entire sentence right and then figuring out how uh, how words uh, with the context around it how 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 those things are embedded into the into the system yeah absolutely so the first experiment that we we've been discussing makes use of context invariant word representations, word vector representations. And the second paper that you've now mentioned is looking at representations produced by contextualizing embedding models, which feed in the entire sentence, exactly as you said, and then produce representations for each of the tokens, each of the words in the sentence. Uh, But those tokens reflect their context in some way. So to give a concrete example where we can imagine that this would be useful. There are polysemous words or homophonous words, like take the word bank. Bank can have multiple different meanings and mm-hmm. you as a human can tell which meaning is intended based on the context. So if I say I, I swam to the river bank, I mean one type of bank. If I say I went to the bank to withdraw money, I mean another type of bank. Yeah. And so the idea roughly is that the, uh, the, the model should be able to capture these types of differences in addition to a variety of other types of differences. And these models have been quite successful on a variety of, of NLP tasks. And so our idea in that paper was to examine, to use probing tasks, classic, classification-based analyses uh, to, to probe and, and analyze the word representations, the contextualized word representations produced by those models and try to get a clearer sense of exactly what information about the context they're capturing. And, and you tried different, different encoders, right? Um, yes. So ELMO stands for embeddings from language models. 
GPT, generative pre-training, and, and more recently, BERT, uh, which I believe came out of Google, uh, mm-hmm. bi-directional encoder representations from transformers. Um, I wonder if you want to talk a bit about transformers. Um, I know that CNN, uh, convolutional neural networks, and RNN, uh, as well as the uh, LSTMs, um, are all sort of inferior to, uh, maybe I, I, <laughs> I don't know this, uh, seems to be inferior to this transformers um, for, from an NLP context. Yeah, so the Transformers came onto the scene in 2017, and the really interesting thing about Transformers is that they allow us to process language, process sentences without recurrence, which is the sort of fun- fundamental component of recurrent neural networks, which has been the prevailing way to process language up until the arrival of Transformers. So um, essentially, recurrent neural networks process words process sentences one word at a time or one unit at a time in sequence um, and then take the hidden states of the network and feed them back in uh, at the next time step in order to keep track of a history. Whereas transformers do not make use of of recurrence. Uh, Transformers were introduced in a paper called attention is all you need. And so these transformers make use of what's called an attention mechanism, which essentially is uh, a waiting function that looks at all of the different words of the sentence and decides how relatively to weight each of them mm-hmm. in in processing across the different layers of the of the model um, and then progressively uh, produces different representations at each of the positions corresponding to the tokens of the sentence and uh, and so these models are being trained in in different ways and they've shown uh, significant successes I don't know that we've really come to a, a final decision about what exactly, uh, where exactly transformers outperform RNNs uh, in terms of systematic analysis, systematic comparisons yeah. of the two, but but absolutely transformers have become very popular and, and have become sort of the predominant uh, model at this point uh, since since a number of, of popular transformers have, have come onto the scene and done very well. Yeah, I read about this uh, uh, GPT-2, Allison. So this is mm-hmm. the byte pair encoding. Essentially, they're using subwords. Yep. Uh, in addition, you want to talk a bit about that? So this is sort of the latest thing, right? Yeah, so using uh, subword units can be useful in terms of getting around problems like uh, sparsity in the in the representation of full words within the training corpus. And so, yeah, I, I, I honestly haven't seen systematic studies of uh, benefits of byte pair encoding either, benefits of the different types of encoding, different formats that these inputs might take. But there are definitely some clear um, benefits that you might see from going below the subword level. When people were first looking below the subword level, often this was in terms of characters and often people would draw a connection to possible benefits in terms of morphology. That is uh, words, you know, from a linguistic standpoint, um, it is very true that words have uh, more stru- more internal structure below the word level. Mm. So you might imagine things like running, runs, ran, things like this, uh, you know, th- these words have things in common. And so you as a, as a human, 
don't necessarily need to memorize different meanings for running runs if you can just put together those pieces. So this is one sort of linguistically motivated type of, mm. of, of reason that you might want subword units. So it could be more efficient, perhaps, in some ways. Yeah, it may be. It, it, in the end, it doesn't tend to uh, align perfectly with the way that morphology works. So that's, that's certainly not the whole story. But, but yeah, I do think that it, uh, it should, should improve efficiency to be able to focus on, on those subword sub components. Yeah, the folks who are working on this, and I can't remember who they were, uh, they said that they cannot release sort of the big, uh, big model that they say has very impressive results because they fear that if it falls into bad hands, it could have some implications. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, so that was, the, that was the rationale that was given for not releasing GPT-2 originally. And I think that, uh, of course, you know, in theory, this um, concern is entirely valid and it's certainly um, important to be thinking about ethics in AI. This is absolutely true. I think that people were very disappointed in that perspective, in that what this also means, if you don't release your model, is that no one can really um, stress test it and see whether it's really as impressive as you're claiming just based on on the paper, on a, a few examples, um, and and shortly after, people just uh, I think started training comparable models and larger models, and and so ultimately it it became a bit moot. But <laughs> yeah, it's 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 certainly an interesting um, conundrum if you think that you have a model that could be used for um, you know <laughs> for ill. Right. Uh, certainly, being conscious of that is is very responsible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the problem there is, of course, um, you know, this type of technology is very difficult to keep it locked up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, it, if it's replicable, people will probably try to replicate it if they have the means. Right, right. Yeah. So in this paper, you also mentioned, um, you know, so I, I want to understand a bit more about it. So you say bi-directional context appears to impact distribution patterns more than depth or architecture, uh, though the transform models show more robustness to distance. Do you want to describe a bit about what you mean there? Yeah, and, and we we had to be a little careful in how uh, strongly we made those claims since we were trying to draw conclusions from a fairly small sample size of models. Yeah. But in we had um, GPT, which was a unidirectional model, and BERT and ELMO, which were bidirectional models. And then ELMO was also uh, a shallower model and was also um, a recurrent model by contrast to GPT and BERT, which were transformers. So trying to draw sort of loose conclusions based on the comparative performance or the comparative patterns that we saw in terms of what information seemed to be captured and how it seemed to be distributed across words. We were finding, for instance, that ELMO which was the one model of the three that was not a transformer, was showing less robustness to distance. We saw more of a drop when we added more distance um, in terms of uh, the information that it seemed to be capturing at longer distances. Mm. That is a, a, a token that is farther away from uh, the, the word yeah. that we're the information of which it might be capturing. So that is if you're probing for how, how far away we're seeing information about the word dog. Um, if, if the word uh, the is, is 
six words away with Elmo, it may be less likely to capture that information about dogs. So, Uh so, um, so yeah, so, so based on that, we made sort of the speculative uh, conclusion that, that this may be due to the fact that it's not, not among the transformers and um, trying to remember which of the other ones was that you, that you mentioned the, Oh, the bi-directionality. Yeah. Yeah, So, and then Elmo and, and Bert are both bi-directional and, and those two, patterned together to a substantial extent, especially when there wasn't intervening distance. Um, there were certain little differences that we saw between them that were pretty interesting, but absolutely the um, GPT being unidirectional definitely substantially impacted the way that its information was distri- distributed, both in terms of uh, sort of in principle differences where you since, since it only has access to things to the left, it's not going to have... Um, any information about uh, things in a direction that it can't see. Yeah. But, uh, but also we saw some interesting patterns in terms of, for instance, it seemed to really prioritize uh, the subject noun over the object noun mm. to, the ex- to, to the point that the object noun seemed to have less information about itself than about the subject noun. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, all three of these models, that they are uh, different concepts, uh, different architectures, they all seem to have some level of performance, uh, but then uh, they, they are good at some things and bad at others. Uh, so at least on the surface, they seem to be learning and storing information quite differently from each other, right? In terms of the three models that yeah. we were comparing? Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we definitely did see some interesting differences there, which we were excited about. Um, and it's, it, it, it's not necessarily easy to know precisely what to make of it, but the, in terms of the types of information that we tested for, it does have some interesting implications in terms of the priorities that these models have with respect to the particular features of the meanings and, and structure of structural information about those words that they decide to, to distribute in terms of contextual information that will be encoded on other words. Yeah, I was just wondering, Alison, uh, I mean, you sit in a very interesting um, intersection of computer science and cognitive science. I was just wondering, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, perhaps nature tried different techniques, uh, abandoned some, improved on others, and now we have the human brain. Uh, but we may be able to find some earlier designs in, in uh, animal models, right? Do we? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I, um, in terms of is is the question sort of whether we might see earlier evolutionary stages uh, in other non-human animals right. that sort of resemble where we are in the development of AI? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, especially if you find some you know sort of inefficient mechanisms in animal brains and. And then we don't find that in the human brain. Um, perhaps you know we can conclude that uh, you know that's part of the selection and evolutionary process. I'm just I'm just speculating here. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting idea. I, I don't know that we have evidence at the moment, and it it may exist. I'm just not aware off the top of my head. It, I don't know that we have evidence at the moment for that being the case, but it's certainly an interesting idea. I think one thing that is interesting to think about is the extent to which um, sort of the number of units, the number of parameters available in a model should be compared to, for instance, the number of neurons in the brain. So I've, I've yeah. had colleagues speculate about, oh, well, you know, if we, re- if we just increased the size of, of the models to, um, 
such that the number of parameters is comparable to the number of neurons in the brain? I mean, is that going to get us farther? Is that really the main sticking point? Um, and could the learning sort of organize things in such a way that we're able to arrive at the place you know, somewhere comparable to uh, where we are in the brain? And I, I, do, I don't know the answer to this, and certainly we don't have reason to think that, um, that these models we certainly see interesting parallels at various points between behaviors of the human brain and behaviors of these models. But alongside those, we always see um, divergences between the two. And so uh, comparing them, I think, is very interesting. And I always say um, the most important level at which to compare them is when it comes to language or anything that else that's uniquely human is, is in terms of the output. So when we're evaluating our models, it's it's not only sensible, but essential that we compare against human outputs yeah. because, uh, you know, what it means to understand language and to do language correctly is really defined by the way that humans do. But in terms of whether the me underlying mechanisms need to or ultimately will resemble those of humans, that's an entirely different question. I think the jury's still out. Right, right. Yeah. So based on what we know today, um, do we have any hypothesis as to the size of the brain and its capabilities? Uh, more neurons, more synapses, um, does it unambiguously increase the capabilities or do we have some sort of inverted U-type function that, you know, at some point adding more complexity to it actually creates more noise? Uh, but what do we, what do we know about that? Um, I think we have a lot more data on this from neural networks than from uh, brains, than yeah. from human brains in that human brains, we're not going to be systematically varying the number of neurons. Right. The number of neurons is, is kind of going to be what it is, unless you mean comparing against animals. And then um, that, you know, in terms of size of brain and number of, of, of neurons available. Um, and so certainly there's a, there's an amount of complexity that, that we're able to recognize differences in when comparing uh, across species. But, um, but yeah, in terms of being able to systematically vary that, I think that's something that we're kind of going to be restricted to, to doing in artificial models rather than in, in humans or, or, or really natural systems. Right, right. In, in artificial models, though, uh, is, it, is it true that, that the bigger, um, the, the bigger, you know, the, the number of neurons you have in the model, number of layers, uh, the bigger, the better in artificial models? It's not quite that simple, but we tend to see um, for, for a given model trained in a you know, sort of holding constant the way that it's trained um, as it gets bigger, we tend to see that the trend is that the performance improves. Now, we also tend to see the trend that, you know, we see the bigger models do better and then people tend to um, produce work that tries to distill down to the the sort of the essential parameters so that these models don't have to be so large and cumbersome. And so that's a pattern that, for instance, we, we might see with GPT-3 that just came out, which is a huge, huge model. Um, but it, it, we do tend to see, in general, the pattern that uh, bigger models tend to have the capacity for better performance. Okay, okay. Um, I want to uh, go into another paper that you have, Addison. So it's, it's uh, assessing composition in sentence vector representations uh, in which you say an important component of achieving language understanding is mastering the composition of sentence meaning, but yeah. an immediate challenge to solve this problem is the opacity of sentence vector representations produced by current neural sentence composition models. Do you want to mm -hmm. talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, this this falls in the category of taking representations that are produced by these types of models and trying to better understand what information exactly they're capturing and what's in there. And in this case, um, by contrast to the the, the contextualizing embeddings, embedding study that we were discussing a moment ago, uh, which was sort of just interested in general information that one might pick up on about you know, surrounding words, um, the this composition paper was focused specifically on trying to find ways to do targeted evaluation of the extent to which sentence encoders, that is models that are designed to produce generalized representations of sentence sentences and presumably sentence meaning, mm. the extent to which they are able to produce sentence to capture and encode sentence meaning in a compositional way. And so the reason the reason that we were so focused on composition is that uh, you know, the idea behind composition is that um, human language is infinite because you can just take the pieces, individual words, for instance, and make them into any new sentence you want. So I can say something nonsensical like the giraffe recited the sonnet to the flight attendant. Um, we had a, a, a nonsensical sentence <laughs> yeah. along those lines in the paper. And you know exactly what that sentence means because you know what the individual words mean, even though it's something that you've presumably never experienced. It's a very strange type of sentence and presumably you've never heard it before. So the fact that you're able to do that is is what allows language to be so expressive and, and for people to be able to understand sentences they've never heard before, et cetera. So this is something we wanted to test for in in the models is the extent to which they're able to capture compositional sentence meaning. So we did a lot of controls to try to ensure that the that we were targeting and testing for uh, sort of systematic capturing of these meaning components that couldn't be attributed to artifacts or memorization. Right, right. So, you know, one of the things I was I was thinking about, um, let me ask you this. So language um, sort of evolved and, um, you know, there might have been a lot of errors. So it could be, you know, sort of an aggregation of errors over time uh, that became something that is that is useful to humans. Uh, but we have created some more systematic languages like computer languages. Mm -hmm. um, is it is a lot easier to teach a machine a computer language than a human language? Um, is it easier to teach a machine a, a uh, in other words, uh, you know, yeah. understand uh, a computer code uh, and produce computer code? Yeah. So to to be clear, natural human language is highly systematic, but it's absolutely true that there. Are, are complexities and idiosyncrasies to natural human language that aren't present in sort of constructed programming languages. And so uh, I, I don't know exactly what the analogy would be in terms of teaching um, a programming language. You know, if you're talking about having a, a model just um, acquire a programming language in the way that we're trying to get it to acquire natural human languages. Um, I, I, I have peripherally been aware of work with folks uh, working on, on um, machine learning with code. And I, I think that 
probably it is an easier task. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the <laughs> results look like since I've been focused on natural language in terms of in terms of my work. But it in term but but it absolutely is true. Your basic observation that the um, the the certain amount of idiosyncrasy that we see in human language and certainly the level of complex uh, natural human language, certainly the amount of complexity. Uh, those are going to be less in programming languages. So yeah, absolutely. It, it is presumably going to be easier in principle to teach a programming language. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I don't think if it's doable, Alison. So uh, as we get better and better in the NLP area, uh, if we come to a point that there are certain things in the English language, let's say it doesn't have to be English, but as an example, that, that makes it quite difficult uh, from an NLP perspective to teach a machine. Uh, and so we are 95% there, let's say, and that 5% is left on the table. Uh, to get to that 5%, we have to maybe 10x the models. Uh, I wonder if there is an opportunity to go go back and rationalize the English language, right? <laughs> because, you know, it, it, it over time, it might have gotten quite inefficient. <laughs> I well, I, so I'm I'm not totally sure, but I, I think that this sort of the the speculation might be moving in the direction of you know can we sort of modify the environment to make it easier to learn? Is that is that sort of yeah? I mean, uh, you know, we take the English language and say you know if it were if if you were to remove five percent of the very complex <laughs> um, you know uh, semantics and and structural features of the English language, it becomes very amenable to NLP. Um, yeah. And, and if it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely an interesting idea. And it's not the, certainly not the first time I've heard a suggestion along these lines, either for language or for other things. I remember a conversation about self-driving cars and sort of the examples of adversarial inputs that you might see, you know, what if someone painted a, a stripe on a stop sign or something, and it's difficult for the, for the self-driving car to, for the, the model yes. running the car to, to recognize it. And the suggestion was, well, why don't we just remove adversarial examples from the environment? And I think that this is probably not the way to go in the end. <laughs> these are sort of, you know, we need, we, sure, it would be easier to be successful that way. Absolutely. But um, since, you know, humans are the, the ones using and producing language and language, you know, idiosyncrasies uh, and, and sort of, you know, language is a sort of a, a living system, right. so to speak. Right. And it, it, it changes on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think that those types of difficulties are going to keep being part of language. And so unless we want to force humans to uh, try to force humans, that is to, to sort of use language exclusively in a way that will be easy for um yeah, I know. For, <laughs> for machines, that's probably not what we want to do. But it it, it also uh, it's, it's definitely an interesting question. I think that trying to do that would really remove a lot of what makes makes language effective. So I don't think these are errors per se. These are just sort of uh, uh, products of the way that that language works and is used. Yeah, yeah. Cope. Uh, I wouldn't get a call from Webster's or English teachers. So. <laughs> Uh, so I want to finish with your the, your latest paper, uh, which is what BERT is not, <laughs> and you're using set of diagnostics uh, on a pre-trained uh, BERT um, transformer. So so BERT is you go through kind of a two two step process, right? You have a pre-trained model, and then you customize it for a specific application, 
And I guess you're running some diagnostics on the pre-trained model. Yep, exactly. So this new paradigm that has become very popular is to uh, train, uh, to pre-train a model on a large amount of of data using a task that doesn't require annotation or, or a combination of tasks not requiring annotation. And, and then once you have this large pre-trained model, uh, then you can fine tune it on smaller amounts of data for particular tasks. And this has proved very, very effective. Bert um, advanced the state of the art across a wide variety of NLP tasks. And this was very impressive. And so a lot of people were wondering, including myself, you know, what is it about the pre-training mm that picks up on such apparently generalizable information that can then uh, support effective fine tuning across such a wide variety of tasks. Yeah. So in targeting the pre-training model, the idea was to ask that specific question. Yeah, and so you did a set of diagnostics um, diagnostics on the pre-trained model. You found some of them, um, some of them as expected, but there, there were certain features, right? Certain certain aspects you found surprising. Yeah, uh, in terms of just the results that, that we got. Results, um, like negation, for example. Yeah, so I think that was one of the most striking results that we that we saw. So one of the diagnostics, and it's worth noting that all of these diagnostics uh, were adapted from N400 experiments uh, since they were well-suited to looking at a predictive model. So one of the diagnostics was... Um, using sentences like a robin is a or a robin is not a yeah. and then see what what the model uh, assigns high probability to in terms of those completions in that next in that next position and uh, when you say a robin is a blank uh, the next word uh, the model assigns very high probability to the sensible continuation of bird uh, in fact if you just look in the top 5 continuations it it finds the correct noun a hundred percent of the time, which was very impressive. But what happens is if you then look at a Robin is not a, mm -hmm. where really anything, almost anything but bird would be a, a correct continuation. The, the model really doesn't change much in terms of its top predictions. Yeah. So the, the top predicted words still contain bird and it still assigns a higher probability to bird than for instance, tree, which would actually be a true continuation in that case. Right. Uh, so, so what we took away from this was that the model really was not sensitive, in, at least not in a generalizable way, to the effects that negation has on a context in terms of what would be a reasonable and true continuation. Yeah, so, um, and, and we see this in the human brain too from an N400 perspective. Yeah, so similarly, we find that there's a reduced N400 amplitude on bird, or yeah, uh, on bird both in the Arabiniza and Arabiniznata context. So this raised when when this was uh, identified as a pattern, this raised interesting questions in terms of the brain's processing of negation. Yeah, so so what's your hypothesis, Addison? So um, you know, the, is the brain sort of jumping ahead uh, in this case, bird as well? You see Robin, and you kind of, you know, filling in the, filling in the blanks, and then you see this not thing in there, and you have to basically completely <laughs> reverse course. Um, is that what's happening? What exactly? What's your hypothesis? Yeah, I think I think my my take essentially is that the there isn't enough information there to make a good prediction, right? So. Yeah. 
Um, a robin is not a is probably one of the least predictive contexts right. <laughs> we, we might we would we, we might be able to come up with because almost everything, you know, that's uh, you know, structurally sound, everything that's a noun, for instance, uh, could basically everything could go there. And so um, I think that in the absence of of a of a, of a good prediction. Um, the model really doesn't have much choice other than to try to predict something that Bert is predictive of, or sorry, Robin, that Robin is predictive of. And so uh, something along those lines. So, you know, it, it backs off essentially to something that is going to be helpful for making a prediction. And so this is, you know, this is totally reasonable um, and, and understandable from a perspective of what this model is trained to do, which is trained to optimally predict words in context. You know, if, if not, is not a helpful cue for making predictions. We wouldn't really expect it necessarily to make a lot of use of that. So, and I think that probably there's a similar type of explanation in terms of the N400, uh, if the brain is not able to uh, put together a sufficiently uh, useful prediction, making use of that not component, um, it may just back off to more of a priming type of effect. Um, but we do see in, in, in a follow-up experiment, and, and this was mentioned also in my paper because we looked had a diagnostic that looked at a similar thing. For certain contexts, you do see the negation having an effect if there's enough of a, a prediction that can be made there. Um, I, I think that the speculation I made in the paper was that these contexts uh, may actually be the types of things that the model has actually seen in its training. Um, and I think that with humans, there's probably a similar type of explanation to be had with respect to those items where humans are able to just form a, a, a more informed type of prediction in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, we, we don't do expert systems anymore. Um, but if you think about this, this is probably the simplest of uh, you know, sort of, sort of a heuristic that you could write uh, as a rule, right? Um, you know, I was playing around with an archaic language called Prologue in the 80s and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in some early NLP uh, type ideas. You know, here the, the prediction is anything other than the word. So, uh, you know, assuming that you have a set of random words, you could pick one of them. Anything other than a bird would work there. And mm -hmm. you just have to look for, uh, you know, this key called not. So, so I, I wondered, you know, we, we have gone now away from those types of ideas into really empirically, you know, teaching machines to find things. Um, is there any attempt to, uh, to combine some rules and heuristics based uh, stuff on top of what we're doing? Yeah, there's certainly interest in that type of thing. People have have absolutely uh, tried to sort of wed more symbolic type reasoning with uh, what's perceived to be less symbolic type of reasoning in neural networks. There there have been some pretty heated debates about uh, sort of the the validity the validity of um, assuming that these two things are mutually exclusive and and the validity of pursuing symbolic approaches. Um, certainly, uh, and, and for instance, people have, have tried to establish, uh, whether neural networks might be learning rules, right? You know, it's not out of the question that the types of rules that we might be able to come up with exactly as you were describing to just yeah. put together a simple rule-based system. These could be the types of things in, in, in theory that, that these models could acquire during the learning course of the learning process. They can be a bit difficult to test for, but that really is exactly the type of thing that you would, you know, the, 
thinking about the type of meaning that negation is, these sort of more logical, uh, functional meanings um, of these operators, they, they are, they, they tend to be sort of concisely expressed in terms of these simple logical rules. And so uh, it does seem like the type of thing that, uh, that, that, that we would like to be able to just sort of build the rule right in and then it might <laughs> solve this problem. And, and so, yeah, I think this, it's not out of the question that it could be uh, a helpful direction to try to find a, an efficient hybrid yeah. that would uh, sort of go ahead and, and build those rules in rather than trying to figure them out if they aren't easily acquired with the objectives we're using. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know what the, you know, if if it is having a low confidence in prediction, uh, maybe you can kick in a heuristic, but this is not the case here. Actually, you have high high confidence, but you're failing uh, in the prediction, right? Yeah, I think that the probabilities were a, a little bit lower in the negation case, but they were still, yeah. you know, reasonably, reasonably high, I think. So it's, I think that it's probably a bit lower confidence because it, you know, the, the context has changed a bit, but yeah, it's, it is certainly, certainly the second part of what you said that it's failing. That's, that's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in conclusion, Alison, you know, that at the intersection of computer science and cognitive science, um, where do you see we will have the, the biggest uh, impact in the next five years? Yeah. Well, I think that there are a couple of directions in which these things can uh, can influence each other, and that I would like to see them influence each other. So, the, the on the one hand, and so you were mentioning just now uh, the possibility that sort of the types of rules that we can come up with as cognitive scientists or as people that that develop formal uh, characterizations of of these types of meanings, it would be nice if we could make use of those types of things uh, to influence the design of our models to, for instance, uh, convert them into inductive biases that can make the learning process more efficient as we uh, tend to be of the mind that the, the human learning of lang human language acquisition is faster. So it would be nice to be able to do this kind of thing, but I think that um, an even more critical uh, way in which this direction of, of collaboration can go, this direction of sort of interdisciplinary um, connection is sort of going back to something that I mentioned in passing earlier, uh, is making use of what we know about the outputs that humans produce, the, the outcomes that humans produce in terms of these different cognitive tasks, yeah. particularly language, and make sure that we're using those uh, in a very controlled and uh, intentional way to uh, to assess our models effectively, because I think there are a lot of, we, we really have a lot of challenges right now in terms of effectively evaluating our models and know, knowing exactly what we need to look for and what we mean, for instance, by quote unquote understanding and whether we're achieving that, et cetera. Mm -hmm. it, it's a very complicated type of thing to even wrap your head around, much less to, to produce effective tests for. And so um, I think that cognitive science really has a lot to contribute in terms of that. In the other direction, I would love for us to get a little bit more of a handle on. We've we already see some work in terms of people comparing um, uh, representations produced by these models or outputs produced by these models um, to to the human brain. Yeah. 
with more of a cognitive science type of goal, um, the challenge there is that these models, there's so much that we already uh, still do not understand about what's going on in these models, which makes it a challenge to use them uh, as a proxy for cognitive hypotheses. So even to the extent that we see similarity between them, it's challenging to know exactly what to conclude based on that about the brain. So I think that uh, we're going to see a lot more work sort of refining the approaches that we're taking and seeing what kinds of advantages we can get from the successes of these models um, in terms of learning more about how, uh, how human cognition works. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating idea. You know, I, I was really fascinated, you know, thinking about the N400 connection, right? Uh, and yeah. I, I wondered, are there other uh, things like that that we could utilize? Um, so when you say things like that, so, do you mean like, other brain so, responses? Yeah, or? getting, you know, so we have a, a fairly clear hypothesis there, it, it sounds to me, that uh, when there is more complexity, less familiarity, uh, you can see that amplitude uh, go up. Uh, and I was wondering that, that similar measurements, whether it's part of EEG or something else, uh, that might allow us to have a, have a better picture, perhaps, what the brain is doing. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there are uh, folks working uh, constantly on trying to better understand the brain. And it's important to note that there's a lot that we still don't understand about the N400 component. Uh, and there absolutely are other components of the EEG signal that people also are studying. Another prominent one is known as the P600, which has other properties. Mm. Um, there are various theories about exactly what's going on with that one, but it often folks will um, study that one in, in tandem with studying the N400. So yeah, there's, there, there, there's a host of different phenomena on the cognitive science side that potentially could be brought to bear in asking questions about, about NLP models and there certainly is potential for using these newer NLP models to, to ask questions about, you know, the types of questions um, that I've alluded to, you know, things that we still don't understand about those components and about the mechanisms that produce them. Um, we just need to be careful when, when doing this type of interdisciplinary work to uh, make sure that we are very clear about the assumptions that we're making and the goals that we have and, ha you know, make sure that the tools that we're applying are, are the right ones and, right. and not just the, the newest ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this has been great, Alison. Uh, thanks so much for spending Thank time you. with me. And, yeah, of uh, course. Yeah, good luck with all your research at Chicago. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.